This is the Martin Luther Sermon Podcast, and this is Martin Luther's Sermon on the Text, John chapter 3, verses 1 to 15, preached on Trinity Sunday. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. For more information on the Luther Sermon Podcast or for more Luther sermons, please visit our website at www.hope-aurora.org. This Luther Sermon is from the House Postles, reading from a translation published by J.A. Schulze Publisher in Columbus, Ohio in 1884, a text and translation in the public domain. First, the Gospel reading, John 3, verse 1 to 15. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto you, Ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that we do know, and testify that which we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things, and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell ye of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Luther's Sermon This festival is so important that much can be said concerning it. In the first place, the gospel lesson itself is very comprehensive and teaches valuable truths. Then, again, it is necessary on this occasion to speak about the doctrine which this festival commemorates and to treat of that chief article of our faith according to which we Christians alone, among all the other people on earth, believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. This article of our faith is the most important in the Church and was not invented by man but came to us by divine revelation. The other festivals of the church here present to us the great works of God in which we can recognize his will and mercy towards us. On Christmas, we celebrate the fact that God became man. On Easter, we commemorate the resurrection of Christ our Lord, who by his own power as true God and man raised himself from the dead. On Pentecost, we remember how the Holy Ghost descended visibly upon the apostles and began his work in them and other believers. In like manner, all the other festivals exhibit unto us God as manifest in some work upon earth. The Trinity Festival, however, is instituted for the purpose of learning from the Word of God who He is in Himself, in His divine essence, aside from His work. To learn this, we must rise above everything which is created and to which we are accustomed and view things greater than the angels in heaven itself and listen only to what God says of Himself and His real being. True, the world, because it cannot comprehend this doctrine, 
in its supposed wisdom, rejects it as foolishness and mocks at the teaching that in the one eternal God there are three distinct persons. Those who preach and believe this doctrine are considered by the world as lunatics. Thus it came to pass that this article, although most clearly taught in the New Testament, was ever opposed in the most violent manner, so that already the evangelist John had to write his gospel in defense of it. So soon appeared the heretic Serinthius, who, having learned from Moses that there is but one God, immediately concluded that Christ could not be God and that God could not become man. Thus he babbled, prompted by his reason, thinking that as he reasoned on the subject, so it must be. But shame upon thee, unclean reason, for by thy light we cannot even tell what we ourselves are. No man ever born on earth can explain how he can see with his eyes or speak and laugh with his mouth. And yet man is so bold and impudent that of his own knowledge and in his own wisdom he talks and disputes about God and his divine being. Is not this the height of folly? I cannot explain how I can see or laugh, and yet I venture to understand and speak of that about which I know nothing at all unless it is revealed to me by the word of God. Yet the world thinks itself a smart in this respect, and Turks and Jews call us Christians fools for believing that Christ is God. Following my own wisdom, I might also think and say, There is only one God, Christ is not God. But when the word of God comes with its teachings, such thoughts and expressions fall to the ground. It behooves us now to consider well this subject. Though we cannot speak per perfectly of this doctrine, yet we can, like little children, stammer about it, repeating what the Scriptures declare, that Christ is true God, that the Holy Ghost is true God, but that there are not three gods nor three beings, as we would speak of three men, three angels, three suns, or three windows. No, not thus is God distinct in His essence, for there is only one divine being. Therefore, though there are three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost, yet they cannot be distinguished nor separated as to their essence, since there is but one God and one indivisible divine being. St. Paul thus speaks of Christ, Colossians 1, verses 15-17, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. From this we learn how St. Paul subjects everything to Christ. If then Christ is above all creation, it follows that he is true God, for Outside of creation, there is nothing else but God. Therefore, Paul calls him the image of the invisible God. But he cannot be the image of God if he is not equally almighty, equally eternal, wise, just, merciful, etc. Christ would not be the image of the Father, but would be unlike him if he fell short in but one of these attributes. Hence we have, inevitably, the double conclusion. First, if the Son of God is the image of the Father, he must be fully of the same divine essence with the Father. And secondly, the distinction of the persons must remain, that the Son is not the Father, nor the Father the Son. The persons are distinct from each other, inasmuch as he who is begotten cannot be the one who begets. Yet there is but one divine essence, else the Son could not be the image of the Father. More we cannot say in regard to this, 
The matter is too far above our comprehension to express it in more intangible language, and we can only stammer about it as long as we are here upon earth. When the Jews and Turks ridicule us and charge us with placing on the throne of heaven three brothers who conjointly exercise authority, we might easily follow their example if we would disregard the words of Scripture. But they misrepresent us. We say nothing about three men or three angels, but we teach one divine essence. Et simplicissimum utatum, a most complete unity, over against everything that is on earth. For even body and soul are not so intimately united as God is in himself. If it be asked, what is the name of this one God? We answer in the words of the scripture and say, his name is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. For the scriptures teach us that God from all eternity before the foundation of the world begat a son who in every respect is like unto him, equally eternal, equally almighty, equally just, etc. Therefore, St. Paul calls him the image of the Father. St. Paul further says, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 9, Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Let us carefully note this expression and compare it with the account that Moses gives of that occurrence, and we will be astonished to see how nicely Paul and Moses agree with each other in this matter. Moses says, Numbers 14, verse 22, This people has tempted me now these ten times. It is the one true God who thus charges Israel with tempting him, for the name used here is never applied to anyone else but God. Paul, in explanation of this, tells plainly who this God was, namely, Christ. For he says, Let us not tempt Christ as some of them also tempted him. This proof cannot be refuted. Paul says that Christ was the God whom those people in the desert tempted, and Moses says that it was the one true God. But surely Christ was not yet born at this time, nor Mary, nor David. Nevertheless, Paul declares that the Jews who were in the desert and not yet in the land of Cana tempted Christ and warns us not to do the like one, lest we fare as badly as they did. These words show plainly that Christ in the same person of whom Moses writes that he is the one eternal almighty God. Thus we see how Moses and St. Paul, though each one in his own words, declare that Christ is the true eternal God. Similar testimonies are frequently found in the New Testament, from which it is evident beyond dispute that Christ is God, and yet a distinct person from the Father, because he is begotten by him. Designate this as you may, we call him a distinct person, but our words will always be incapable of fully expressing it. The Father and the Son are not the same person, and yet they are one and inseparable in essence and in their nature so that it follows that all the attributes pertaining to the Father belong also to the Son, with the single exception that the Father has begotten the Son from eternity and not the Son, the Father. Again, the Apostle Paul acts, chapter 20, verse 28, when he has blessed the Ephesians at Miletus, says, Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers to feed the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood. This passage is plain and says that Christ, who has purchased the church through his blood, is God. For the church has but one Lord whom she acknowledges as such, even God. 
If Christ has purchased her with his own blood, and she now belongs to him, he must verily be true God. Again, since Christ has purchased the church with his own blood, it follows that he is true God, begotten of the Father from eternity, and also in time born into the world of the Virgin Mary. For Paul says here to the deacons or pastors, remember that it is your duty to feed the church or flock which God purchased with his blood. From this we also see that we have, not, have a most glorious office in which we dare not oppress others or teach them human traditions, as does the Pope and his crowd, but are ordered to feed the flock with the pure doctrine of God's word. May he who has purchased his church with his blood in mercy grant us the ability to fulfill our office, that his name may be hallowed and his church may be built up. Amen. Similar passages are plenty, especially in the Gospel according to St. John, which very plainly declare that Christ is the true, real, eternal God, although Father and Son are two distinct persons. The New Testament has many such proofs, and also the Old Testament, though in the latter they are somewhat more obscure. St. John in his Gospel calls Christ in regard to his eternal existence the Word, and thus coincides with Moses, who begins with the declaration that before the creation God had with him the Word, equal with him in power and that God, through that word, created all things. Hence God and the word must be one essence, for both are eternal and almighty, though he who speaks the word and the word spoken are two distinct persons. The patriarch Jacob, Genesis 48, verses 15 and 16, makes the same distinction in regard to these persons when he says, The God which fed me all my life long unto this day the angel which redeemed me from all evil blessed the lads and let them grow unto a multitude in the midst of the earth. Here the term angel is applied to Christ, not because he uh, in his nature and essence is an angel, for it would be idolatry to invoke an angel and ask for his blessing, and the invocation is a confession that he is the real true God, but his form of existence should not always be precisely the same as that of the invisible God, but he should be clothed in human flesh and be sent upon earth to be sacrificed for our sins. Christ himself often speaks thus in the New Testament, the Father who hath sent me, again, as the Father who hath sent me. And in the prophet Isaiah, chapter 63, verse 1, we read, The Lord God has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Also Isaiah 63, verse 9, And the angel of his presence saved them. In the same manner Malachi calls Christ an angel of the testament, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. From these quotations, we see how the expressions God and angel represent two distinct persons, while they are one and the same essence. For surely the angel is also the real eternal God, else Jacob would not invoke him. But he is called angel on account of his office and work which is placed upon him by the Father. This is asserted by all the passages in the scriptures where mention is made by the prophets of the seed of the woman, that he would bring blessing unto us, establish an eternal kingdom, redeem us from sin, and prepare us for a life eternal. These are all works that cannot be done by any creature, but God alone can do them. Since these works are, by the prophets, ascribed to the man Christ, it must surely follow that Christ is the true Almighty God, as it was said to Philip, John chapter 14, verse 11, Believe me, that I am in the Father, and the Father in me.
or believe me for the very work's sake. Thus also says Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. That the prophet here means a person who has a natural body and life is evident. But he continues to say of this person, Of the increase of his government and place, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. Now I ask, is it not plain enough from these expressions, Prince of Peace, Judgment, and Justice, that this man, to whom they apply, shall be able to forgive sin and to protect his people and rescue them from all sorrow and evil, while at the same time he is truly called a man, a son, born as a child? And yet it is also declared of him that he has an eternal kingdom established with judgment and with justice from henceforth and forever, from which it follows that this man is also the true almighty and eternal God. Many passages from the prophets apply here, in which they plainly call Christ God. Thus in Psalm 68, verses 23 and 31, also Hosea chapter 3, verse 5, Afterward shall the children of Israel return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. In this passage, the prophet uses the words God and David the king, indicating thereby two distinct persons, since he evidently, with the latter expression, points to Christ, the son of David, as to the flesh. But he also considers these two persons as one when he says that the house of Israel shall seek them, for what else would it be but idolatry to seek, that is, to worship, David, unless by the term David, that is, Christ, the Son of David, according to the flesh, the one true God is meant. This is clearly shown by the concluding words, They shall fear the Lord and his goodness. Christ himself, when he, Matthew 22, cites Psalm 110 over against the Pharisees, wishes to prove from this psalm it necessarily follows that he is not only the son of David, but also the son of God, or the one true God. These and other similar testimonies must be carefully remembered by us so that we may be able to resist the devil and his false doctrines. We now proceed to notice similar declarations concerning the Holy Ghost, showing that he is true God, although he is a distinct person, that is, he is neither the Father nor the Son, though as to his essence he is entirely equal to both. Thus our faith can be strengthened and fully assured that we adore but one God, eternal and omnipotent, and not three gods, as the Jews and Turks maliciously lie about us. At the same time, we hold to the belief that there are three distinct persons, namely God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. It is indeed a source of great thankfulness unto God for us Christians that we have, in regard to this all-important doctrine, such glorious, clear, beautiful, and indisputable testimonies in the Holy Scriptures, upon which we can rest our belief and bid defiance to the devil and the world. We are not forced to take the testimony of men in this matter as proof of our faith. Christ himself declares in the most positive manner that the Holy Ghost is true God, else he would not have been he would not have given his command in regard to baptism in the form he did, saying, Baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. These precise words of Christ 
make it plain enough that the Holy Ghost is necessarily true God, equal in power and majesty from all eternity to the Father and the Son. For surely Christ, if it were otherwise, would never have given him equal rank with the Father and himself in a work that pertains to the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Christ says, John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17, I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. This passage is very important, for in it we find fully expressed the distinction as to the three persons. I, says Christ, will pray to the Father. Two persons are thus mentioned. Christ the Son who prays, and the Father who is implored to give another comforter. If the Father is to send such a comforter, the Father himself cannot be this comforter, nor can Christ, who prays for such a comforter, himself be the comforter, for he says, He, the Father, shall give you another comforter. Three persons are therefore plainly taught in this passage. No one can gainsay that. Just as the Father and the Son are two distinct persons, so the Holy Ghost, as the third person, is distinct from the Father and the Son, but there is, nevertheless, only one true and eternal God. Concerning this third person, Christ says, John Chapter 15, verse 26. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. This passage not only describes the office and work of the Holy Ghost, but also his essence in declaring that he proceedeth from the Father. That means that his proceeding is without beginning, eternal, for the Father, from whom the Holy Ghost proceedeth, is without beginning and eternal. For this reason, the holy prophets call him the Spirit of the Lord. Thus you heard it said on the holy day of Pentecost when St. Peter cited the expression of the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last day, says God, I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, etc. Here notice carefully the words, I will pour out my Spirit. In God, everything is eternal, omnipotent, holy, wise, good, and immortal, for these attributes belong to his being. Therefore, when Christ says of the Spirit, whom I will send from the Father, he declares that the Holy Ghost proceeds not only from the Father, or that he is but the Spirit of the Father, but that he at the same time is also the Spirit of the Son, as St. Paul and St. Peter clearly call him, Romans chapter 8 and Second Peter chapter 1, the Spirit of Christ. No one can send the Holy Ghost except God, whose Spirit he is, and from whom he proceeds, etc. There are many other scriptural passages which the fathers of the Church have employed as proofs for that glorious article of faith which they have maintained in spite of the devil and the world, and in which we confess one God and three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost, who is such from all eternity and not, as the heretics foolishly teach, that these three names mean but one person who in time manifested himself in three various ways. No doubt, this article of our faith seems foolish to reason, but that is of no importance. If it were proper to be critical with our human reason in this matter, I venture to say I would be able to practice such criticism with more skill than the Jew or the Turk. But I thank my God that he gave me the grace to have no desire to dispute concerning this article, whether it be true or consistent, because I find it well grounded and taught in the Scripture. I believe God more than my own reason and thoughts, 
and I care nothing for the objection that it is unreasonable to teach the existence of but one essence in which there are three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. The question here is not whether this doctrine is true, but whether it is found in the Word of God. If it is found there, then be assured that it is true, for God's Word is truth. Since the Holy Scriptures have this article of our faith, as we have just now seen, and since our fathers so earnestly contend for its preservation and have handed it down to us in its purity, we should not doubt nor attempt to investigate with our reason how Father, Son, and Holy Ghost can be one God. We poor human creatures cannot even comprehend, though we have the help of ever so many wise men of this world, how it happens that we laugh or can see a high hill many miles away or how sleep overpowers us so that the body seems dead and is yet alive. If we are thus unable to understand matters pertaining to our own life and daily experience, why then, prompted by the devil, should we venture with our own reason to comprehend God in his majesty and divine essence? If we must speculate, let us begin with our own selves and find out what becomes of our eyes, ears, and other senses when we sleep. Speculation in this direction might at least be indulged without harm. It will never do to attempt to explain and comprehend this article of our faith with our reason, for we cannot understand how three can be one. We simply take the word as it is, and it declares concerning Christ that he is the image of the Father and the firstborn of every creature, from which it follows that he is not created, but is God from all eternity. Other passages, especially in St. John, contain the same truth, the Father has made all things subject unto me. Whosoever seeth me, seeth the Father. Doest thou not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? Such expressions cannot be explained away. They mean what they say. God himself has asserted that there is no difference between the Father and the Son, except that the Son is begotten of the Father. How this is possible, we know not. We only know that the Scriptures declare that he is the firstborn of every creature, and the image of the invisible God. In like manner do the Holy Scriptures speak of the third person, the Holy Ghost, the Spirit of God. As already mentioned, he proceedeth from the Father and the Son, that is, he has the same essence as the Father and the Son, so that the divinity and all the attributes of wisdom and power belong equally to the Holy Ghost. How this can be, I cannot explain to you. It is a mystery beyond the comprehension of angels and every creature. We must be satisfied with what the Scripture reveal unto us in this matter, and this revelation we must accept in faith if we wish to be saved. The full understanding of this mystery pertains not to this life, but will take place in heaven. In the meanwhile, we must be patient and accept in childlike faith what the Word of God teaches concerning this article. This doctrine is presented also in an exceedingly appropriate manner in the Creed, which, as everyone knows, was not invented by us nor by the fathers, but was compiled neatly and briefly from the writings of the prophets and the apostles, even as a bee gathers the honey from many flowers. In the Creed we confess in the first place, I believe in God the Father. He is the first person in the Godhead. That the three persons may be more readily regarded as distinct from each other, there is asserted of each one, in precise words, a peculiar attribute and work. Thus the work of creation is ascribed to the first person, although this work indeed is done by the one divine being, so that it might properly be said 
God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost has created heaven and earth. But inasmuch as the Father, being the first person in the Godhead, has not manifested himself and his majesty to his creatures in any other visible external work beside creation, this work is ascribed to him. The term Father, moreover, implies that he is distinct from the other persons in this, that he is of himself and of no other. The Son and the Holy Ghost, however, proceed from the Father. Again, we confess in the Creed, I believe in another who is also God, for believing refers not to any creature as its object, but only to God. And who is this one? Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son. Thus have the Christians confessed for more than 1,500 years. Yea, it has been the belief of the faithful from the beginning of the world, even if they did not use the words of our creed to express the hope and trust. They believed and confessed the same faith that we confess in the creed. The distinguishing feature is that he is called the only begotten Son of God. For all angels, yea, all Christians may be called sons and children of God, but not one of them can it be said that he is the only begotten. This attribute belongs only to Christ the Lord, who has no equal in his birth among all creatures, not even among the angels. He alone is the true, real Son of God, the Father, because he is of the same divine, eternal, uncreated essence of the Father. Then comes the mention of his special works. Conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried, descended into hell, The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. Here the Son is represented as distinguished by his work. He, not the Father, nor the Holy Ghost, became a real human being of flesh and blood, just as we are, and suffered and died for us, and rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, etc. In the third article we confess, I believe in the Holy Ghost. Here another distinct person is mentioned, yet of equal divinity with the Father and the Son, since it is not permitted to believe in anyone else except the one true God, as the first commandment declares, I alone and thy God. Here again is expressed precisely and clearly the truth that the divine essence is one, that we believe in and adore one God in three distinct persons. In holy baptism, we have the same distinction made when we are baptized in the name of the one God although Christ commands to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. The peculiarity of this third person is that he proceeds from the Father and the Son, and is therefore called the Spirit, both of the Father and of the Son, being poured out into the hearts of men. He manifests his power in the Church of Christ by calling and enlightening among all nations the people and kindling in their hearts true faith through the gospel thus sanctifying them unto eternal life. Thus we see that the creed speaks of three distinct persons in the one divine essence, each one having manifested himself in a separate work. No doubt our confession distinguishes so plainly between these three persons that we Christians might know that there is but one God and three persons. For this reason, the different work of each of these persons is mentioned that they themselves may not become confounded in our thoughts. To the Father is ascribed the work of creation, to the Son the work of redemption, and to the Holy Ghost the work of sanctification. 
This statement, however, does not mean that the Father alone is the Creator, nor that the Son alone is the Redeemer, nor that the Holy Ghost alone is the Sanctifier, for these works are performed by the Divine Majesty in its unity. The creation, as well as the redemption and the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection from the dead and life eternal. But our creed designates especially the Father as the Creator, the work of creation pertaining originally to Him as the first person in the Godhead. So the Son is especially mentioned in connection with the work of redemption which He in His own person performed, and in the same manner the Holy Ghost is particularly mentioned in the work of sanctification for which He was sent and made manifest. The intention of this statement of the doctrine of the Trinity in our creed was that the Christians should have the humble but certain faith that there is but one God existing, however, as three persons in one divine essence, a doctrine obtained by the fathers of the church from the writings of Moses, the prophets, and the apostles, and defended successfully against all heretics. This faith has come down to us, and God by his power has maintained it over against all schismatics and the devil, in his church to this very day. Hence it behooves us humbly to cling to this faith without any further speculation, for Christians do not refuse to believe what may seem foolish to their human reason. St. Paul says, We are made a spectacle to the world. We are fools for Christ's sake. Our reason can never understand nor believe that three are one and that one is in three, nor that God has become man. It cannot comprehend that when a man, according to the command of Christ, is washed by water in baptism, he is bathed in the blood of Jesus and cleansed from all sin, etc. Such articles of faith appear to reason as foolishness, as St. Paul declares, when he calls the preaching of the gospel foolishness, through which, however, God will save those who do not doubt but believe the word. The others who give room to their reason in these matters of faith and despise the word will perish in their wisdom and be lost. We have now presented sufficient proofs for the Holy Trinity from the Scriptures and the Creed. From these, the believing Christians will be fully instructed in his confession of this truth. In addition to these proofs, we may refer here also to miracles which show forth the divinity of Christ and the Holy Ghost, and which are indeed not unimportant. For God directs such miracles to be performed for the purpose of strengthening the Christian in the true faith. If it had been simply the will of God to punish those people who taught false doctrine, he could easily have reserved such punishment for yonder world as he often permits people to live on in their sinful ways for ten, twenty, or thirty years unpunished. But in the case of some of these chief heretics who have reviled and offended God with their doctrine, we recognize a peculiar divine visitation in the punishment that came upon them here in this world that thereby a clear testimony might be given in the sight of men of the wrath of God upon such heretics who have been the cause of so much unbelief, blasphemy, and defamation of himself and his holy word. The story is told that a certain heretic by the name of Serinthus lived during the time of John the Evangelist, and that he was the first one who preached against the doctrine of the apostles, blaspheming Christ by teaching that he was not God. This heresy spread so rapidly that after the other evangelists, St. John had to write his gospel for the very purpose of defending and establishing the doctrine of the divinity of Christ against the false teachings of this Serenthus and his crowd. Hence, it is that St. John does not dwell so much upon the miracles of Christ as upon his person and his sermons, 
in which Christ speaks so powerfully of himself as true God, born of the Father from eternity, equal to him in majesty, power, honor, wisdom, justice, and all the other divine attributes. It so happened once that John, with a few of his disciples, went into a public bath. When he saw that the heretic Serenthus, with his crowd, was there too, he made haste to leave the bath and told his disciples to hurry away from him and not to linger in company in the company of blasphemers. His disciples obeyed and speedily followed him. Scarcely had they left the bath when the building fell with a crash, killing Serenthus and his followers. A similar story is related concerning the heretic Arius, who especially attacked this article which teaches that Christ is true God. He did much harm with his false doctrine throughout Christendom, and it took 400 years after his death to combat its injur injurious influence. Yea, it is not even yet fully eradicated. In the death of this man, the Lord God exalted his honor in a marvelous manner. The narratives of, of those days tell us how cunningly this Arius had ingratiated himself with the emperor Constantine and his ad advisers by an oath leading them firmly to believe that he taught nothing wrong. The emperor even ordered the bishop Alexander of Constantinople to consider this Arius again, again as a member of the Christian church and to restore him to his priestly office. The pious bishop, however, refused to do this, for he knew full well what Arius and his crowd were aiming at. Hereupon Eusebius and the other bishops, who took the part of Arius, threatened the faithful Alexander that if he would not comply with the emperor's order, they would drive him by force from his office and have Arius restored by the vote of his congregation. They gave to Alexander one day to consider this matter before they would act. The pious bishop became much troubled at heart, for he knew that the following of Arius was large and powerful, and that he, furthermore, had for him the edict of the emperor and the entire imperial court. In this danger and distress, Alexander went for help to that source where, in matters pertaining to the honor of God, help alone can be found, namely, to God himself. All night long he continued in prayer, stretched upon the floor of the church, beseeching God to rescue the honor of his name and to employ such means as would effectually prevent the execution of, this evil of the evil intentions of the heretics. The next morning, when the time for assembling in the church had come, and when Bishop Alexander would either have to receive Arius again into the church or to be driven from his office, Arius himself started early on his way to the sanctuary, walking proudly amid the large company of his friends. All at once, while yet on the road, he was seized with a great pain in his bowels, and he had to seek a private closet. The procession waited a long time on the street for the return of Arius, but he came not. Finally the report spread that he died in the closet, his lungs and livers having passed from him. The account of this terrible event very aptly concludes in the words, Mortem dignum blasphema et fortida mente. That is, his death was worthy of his blasphemous and putrid heart. Thus we see how this article of our faith has been proven and established from the scriptures, has been defended by the apostles and the fathers of the church, and finally has been corroborated by miraculous occurrences in spite of the devil and his imps. Nor should we doubt in the least the continuance of this doctrine, but must faithfully confess daily with our children in our creed that we believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost, one God in three persons.
Three different works are therefore mentioned in the creed in order that the Christians should neither confound the persons nor separate the divine nature and God, but will regard him as one God in an inseparable essence. This doctrine is preached upon this Sunday to the end that people may again learn and know how the church came by this faith, not through a dream, but through the grace of God, by his holy word and the declarations of the apostles and the fathers. God grant that we may all remain firm in this doctrine and faith unto the end of our life. Amen. This has been Dr. Martin Luther's sermon on John chapter 3, verse 1 to 15, but especially on the occasion of Trinity Sunday, a sermon on the three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in one God. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, preaching or reading uh, Luther's Postles for the Lutheran Sermon Podcast. For more Luther sermons, for more information about the Luther Sermon Podcast, please visit our website at www.hope-aurora.org.